1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America N.A., member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Fifty years ago, in 1972, President Richard Nixon made his historic visit to China, opening the door to diplomatic and trade relations between that country and the U.S. It took until 1994... For China to open up to Hollywood movies, a consequential move for China, the American movie industry, and cultural values worldwide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm your host, Renee Garfinkel, and I'm pleased to welcome Eric Schwartzel to the show today. He's the film industry reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and he's joining us to talk about his new book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Eric Schwartzel, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, thank you for having me, Dr. Garfinkel.
1: Please call me Renee. Okay, Uh, thank you,
0: Renee.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Eric, just from reading your book, you have deep knowledge of movies and film history, and I'm guessing that you're a movie lover. So before we get to your book, what... Are your favorite movies of all time?
0: Oh, that's a, thats a great question. It's actually one that I haven't been asked in in promoting this book. Um, you know, I think that I, I've I've thought about this before, and I think I'd if I had to pick one title, I might pick the uh, Alfred Hitchcock film *Strangers on a Train* which I absolutely adore. Um, I also, I have to say, I love the movie Moulin Rouge and um, the movie Capote, I think is probably my favorite movie about writing and writers. Um, and then the best movie, I, I had to watch a lot of movies while reporting this book, and the best movie I watched for the reporting was Farewell, My Concubine, the, um, the Chinese movie from from the late 1980s. Um, but those are some titles that come to mind. I mean, it's interesting, though, I always say, you know, when I started covering the film industry, I have to watch a lot of great movies, but I also have to watch a lot of terrible movies. And, and in, you know, it's like covering anything, right? Like sometimes whenever you have to cover it and, and look at it from a business perspective, you have to sort of divorce yourself from whether or not you're actually enjoying it. <laughs>
1: Okay, so we shouldn't all envy you t- <laughs> for having to watch movies as part of your job. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Careful
0: what you wish for, I would say. Right.
1: Well, well, movies have always been vehicles for propaganda or at least uh, presenting ideology. So your premise is that today's movie environment is different in some qualitative and quantitative way uh, from the way it was before. But how is it different from, let's say, the
0: 1930s and 40s when America dominated the field? This is a key distinction, I think, because whenever I was reporting this book and I would talk to people about China's influence on Hollywood, I I always noticed how queasy it made some Americans to have a foreign government influencing what we consider probably the most effective soft power tool in our country's history and I think it it has that queasiness has its roots in the 30s and 40s because that is when we really started to see Hollywood become conscripted by its government and 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 even in its earliest days I think you know Woodrow Wilson and and other officials from the 20s identified very early on the power that the movies had to change hearts and minds. But it wasn't until World War II that the movies really served a, a propagandistic purpose. Um, so after the U.S. entered the war, um, obviously a ton of movies go into production like Sergeant York and Mrs. Miniver, movies that were designed to do two things. One, to sort of signal American values abroad, but also rally American support at home. And then after World War II, uh, films actually become a critical part of the Marshall Plan. And movies are made and sent to Europe to try and essentially pitch Europeans on the virtues of capitalism and democracy and, and liberal values. And, and, and this, is the, this is the sort of expectation that I think a lot of Americans have for Hollywood Going up through the Cold War, Um, and it isn't until it isn't until the nineteen nineties, early two thousands, that we start to see a global market take shape that is going to make that is really going to put some strain on Hollywood's ability to be a purely American vessel. Uh,
1: During the thirties and well, actually forties and fifties. Uh, the U.S. government got very involved with censors and the McCarthy-era blacklist. So that, I guess, is a risk that's not only exclusive to authoritarian governments. Or is China somehow different than those bad old days were in the States?
0: I think China is different. I mean, I, 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 you know, I think... It's it's definitely worth looking and contrasting the two models and and looking at how the movies have served governmental purposes in the U.S. versus that in China. I always I always just caution um, people drawing these these parallels that China has a much more systemized model and an ability to really essentially conscript its entertainers into doing the CCP's bidding. Um, I mean, in, in China, every movie before it is put into production is is approved at a script level and then approved yet again before it is, uh, it is released in theaters. And not only that, but whenever the government decides that it wants to put forward a certain message, whether it's, you know, we want to help celebrate an anniversary of the... The CCP or of the People's Liberation Army, it will it will go so far as to say, and we're going to have twelve movies produced about it. And then suddenly, directors and actors and producers get a phone call that say, you know, we'd like you to show up on set next Wednesday and make this movie for us. So it's 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 much more hands on, much more deliberate than I think the the more um, kind of. In, I would say, like, less, less deliberate, less um, tethered model that had emerged over the years in America?
1: Well, looking at it from a global perspective, um, China has other global outreach uh, policies. For example, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, do they coordinate their film policy with these other policies? Is it is it very clear when when they don't say here's a script we want you to show up and make this movie uh, are their policy directives very clear to film directors and and uh, producers around the world or do you have to guess at what they would be happy with
0: you know it's it's like anything i think with with china's ruling party it's a mix of both i mean you've in on one hand you've never seen a bureaucracy put out more papers, speeches, uh, official documentation of what it wants to do, what it's planning to do. Um I mean this is a this is a party that rules in five-year plans. Um however, I think that one thing that is that is very um also very important about understanding this dynamic is just how oftentimes it relies on looking at the where the wind is blowing, and 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 a perfect example of this is the Belt and Road Initiative because the Belt and Road Initiative is this collection of very deliberate, uh, you know, trade policies and investments and plans, and and yet there's also this. Cultural complement to it that I think gets gets less um, gets less attention, and it, it's funny because you can trace what China wants to do off screen by what it is often doing on screen. So I'll give you an example. So, um, over the past five or six years or so, as Belt and Road development has deepened in certain countries, it's not uncommon for there to be a co-production treaty announced between China and whatever. Country, It is deepening those ties with. Similarly, I think, you know, China allows in about 30 to 35 foreign films a year. And the the countries of origin for those films often reflect the geopolitical alliances that are forming outside of China. So for instance, um, when relations with the US were good, a lot of American movies got in when they deteriorated during the Trump administration more European and Southeast Asian films got in and and more American films were denied. So you can sort of see how everything kind of moves in concert, if not officially, then unofficially.
1: Well, since we're talking about international and there's Belt and Road Initiative, tell us the story of how China captured large parts of the African viewing public for its own film and TV shows.
0: This is a I mean this is this was my favorite part of the book to report um, because as I as I said I think we we know quite a bit about the belt and Road initiative and just sort of how expansive it is but there is a soft power element that I think is underappreciated here and I so whenever I was working on the book I tried to think about you know where is the what is the best way to tell this story and it was easy to find co-productions between China and Belt and Road countries, um, but there was an effort in Africa that I thought really, really dwarfed all of them, and it was called the 10,000 Villages Project, which is a project run out of Beijing to distribute low-cost satellite dishes to 10,000 African villages, and these are villages where often there already is quite a Chinese omnipresence. And whether it is in the form of train stations or new highways or hospital equipment or, in the past two years, vaccines, um, these are villages where China has already shown up in force. Um, However, the satellite dishes are doing something different. They're oftentimes introducing these villagers to China itself. So. In one village I went to in Kenya where these satellite dishes had been distributed, it was very common to walk into an apartment and see families watching Chinese soap operas or Chinese kung fu or Chinese dramas and to meet young children who, if not preferred Chinese entertainment to American entertainment, then allowed for a kind of coexistence that I think most Americans have kind of, I mean, I think have kind of challenged a lot of the American complacency around uh, how we have been the default entertainment for so long. Um, and so the the satellite dishes serve a number of different purposes. As I said, one is they sort of introduce Chinese culture, Chinese values to to these villagers, but they also kind of give a face to this country this superpower that has appeared seemingly overnight
1: so so that is the aspect of competition between uh, America and China in other countries in the in the film field uh, but China itself as the largest market in the world and nearly the largest economy, Uh, is very attractive to investors. uh, And American uh, film and media companies look at China. Uh, Disney was a leader in investing in China. And you tell a very moving story uh, about how its remake of Mulan became a giant fiasco. Um, Tell us a little about that.
0: You're absolutely right. And and it's the perfect, Disney's the perfect example of a company that rushed into China and rushed toward its billion consumers and then saw suddenly all of that investment turn into something of a vulnerability and or a liability, I should say. Um, and, and Mulan was a fascinating example. I think we, we all remember the original animated version of the film that came out in the, the late 90s. Um, before China was a major market at all. And about 20 years later, Disney had a strategy of remaking a lot of those animated classics into live-action films. They did it with Beauty and the Beast. They did it with Cinderella. They did it with a few others. And and Mulan was something of a no-brainer because here you have not only an animated classic, but you have a movie that might have direct and obvious appeal in what had become the world's most important foreign market. And so Mulan is made, a live-action version of Mulan is made. Uh, Disney tries as hard as it can to to get it right and to make it in a way that will appeal to Chinese audiences. But then, as the movie is about to come out in 2020, uh, it is revealed that the film had shot scenes in Xinjiang province, which is where the um, Uyghur minorities have been uh, held in re-education camps and and persecuted for their beliefs. Um, you know, it seems like almost every week now, we have more and more reports coming from that province of some pretty terrifying practices um, that the CCP is implementing against yes. the Uyghurs. And, and so... Disney having filmed in that province and at one point even thanking local authorities in the credits of the film, um, really became this case study in how all of that potential revenue comes at a major cost, um, and and a real can really become a thicket of political liability very quickly, and and not only that, but it also um, it also really dented the film's prospects in China because when all of that news and attention swarmed around Xinjiang, obviously authorities in Beijing didn't want this movie to get any more attention than it, than it otherwise would have. So they pulled all of the marketing from it. And then what was fascinating as well is that the actual movie, absent the Xinjiang controversy, really fell flat with Chinese audiences because it was an American version of a Chinese story that came at a time when they were embracing Chinese versions of Chinese stories. So over the past several years, China's film industry has grown more and more sophisticated and Chinese audiences have understandably started preferring to see Chinese stories. And this shouldn't come as a surprise, right? But but I think it did in many corners of Hollywood. And And what was interesting was the, the Chinese audiences now having their own version of Chinese stories didn't need an American version of it. As I, as I often say, you know, would we expect Americans to go see a Chinese version of Davy Crockett?
1: Yes, you, you, you point that obvious point out in the book. And, and I'm wondering, do you, do you think that the fact that Disney executives – didn't consider that issue is just a reflection of our American, you could say arrogance and narcissism, or let's just say sometimes excessive self confidence.
0: (laughs) Well, that's kind. I think it is. I think it is. I think that absolutely um, China's ability to mount a local competitor to Hollywood caught a lot of. Hollywood executives off guard because what Hollywood had in China and actually in markets around the world was a unique product. Um, One of the reasons why Hollywood became the, the global entertainment capital was because it really was the only market that was able to make big budget, expensive films that could be distributed around the world. You know, other entertainment capitals of the early 20th century, like Germany or France, they didn't have home markets that could sustain that kind of production. And so whenever Hollywood movies would come into the Chinese market, everybody would go see them because there was no other place to see something with that much spectacle and that much bombast. And, Mm -hmm. and so Hollywood really was the only game in town for a while when it came to a certain kind of film It just so happens that China was very eager to learn how to do it themselves and very soon did.
1: Hmm. Well, for our listeners who are not investors in the film industry and not film historians, but just people who enjoy movies, um, give us some examples of the Chinese impact on what we see in American-made movies. Uh, you, you write about harm to the careers of various actors and directors, and, well, tell us.
0: <laughs> so, so I think the dynamic to understand here is that, as you said in your introduction, American movies started flowing into China in 1994, and really, at the time, the country was something of an economic afterthought. It wasn't until about 15 years later that the box office started to grow very quickly and it became very obvious even as early as 2010 that China was going to become the number one box office in the world. And so you have, a, you have a growth market for an industry that had thought that it had saturated the world. And then the other dynamic that you have to keep in mind here is that you cannot access that growth market until a movie has been approved by Communist Party censors. So that means you have to avoid any and all themes or... Instances of dialogue, or even just pure just images that that the censors might take issue with. So, what does that mean? That means you have to avoid what they call the three T's: Tibet, Taiwan, and Tiananmen Square. Um, no movie is going to touch on any of those topics. If there is a map shown in a movie, it has to make sh- it has to adhere to the one China policy, and and present Taiwan as as part of China. Um, but also, I think the the number one sensitivity is anything that makes that presents China in a bad light. So, for instance, when the uh, zombie apocalypse movie World War Z was in post production, executives at Paramount removed a scene that implied that the zombie outbreak had originated in China because they worried that officials would be angry if it was released like that um actors as you said who have spoken out against china have been blacklisted in the country most famously i think is richard Gere, who starting in the early 90s became a massive proponent of the dalai lama and the 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 tibetan cause and for a while this had no impact on his career because no one was really thinking about china but because he was so vocal in his criticism of the country As China's box office leverage grew, gear became radioactive. And starting around 2009, no studio would touch him because they knew that even if he was just in the movie at all, it didn't stand a chance of getting into China. And not only that, working with him might jeopardize their other releases in the market, too. And so gear has been essentially uh, blacklisted. And there, and that's why if you look at his recent filmography, a lot of it is smaller independent films that are being released by companies with no holdings or no business interest in China. But what's interesting, I think, is, is also that a lot of times now, it, you know, Hollywood has been working in the market for so long that it is able to anticipate the censor's concern. So for instance, there was a movie that came out several years ago called Pixels that had, um, had some scenes of this like global destruction that was happening. And at one point, there was a scene in which the Great Wall was destroyed as part of this destruction. And before the scene was even filmed, uh, executives at Sony who were reading the script said, why don't we just make it the Taj Mahal? It, it's just, you know, it's just not worth the potential headache. So there's been this kind of culture of self-censorship that's been absorbed because the studios now have two decades of experience seeing what gets in and what doesn't get in.
1: And, of course, why would they take any chances? So uh, I guess the risk for us as viewers is movies will be more bland, more um, I, less controversial. What do you, what do you think the uh, anticipatory censorship does to movies?
0: Well, I think that, I think one thing it's done is, is, you know, I think vis-a-vis China, it hasn't allowed this central artery of cultural expression to explore what is becoming the story of the century, right? Which is the US and China. And what model is going to really be the the dominant model of of this of the next hundred years? And so and so it's not it's not been explored with any complexity um, on screen because every portrayal of China has to be so sanitized. And I think that I think that there also may be an effect of really contributing to, American misunderstanding of China or of, of life in China because it has either been avoided, as you said, to avoid the headache or presented in such a flat, safe way that there's no, um, there's no nuance. And, and without any nuance, it can be hard, I think, to have any kind of empathy or any kind of, um, frankly, curiosity about, about, about life there. Um, and so I think that's I think that's one effect. I think I think there's also you know just the global market in general has has really flattened a lot of storytelling. Um, you know the 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 new Top Gun movie, which is the the big box office hit of the moment, very deliberately avoids any kind of uh, overt villain in the film. the um, The bad guys in this movie are in some unidentified country. We don't, know, we don't know where they are. The, the, there's like, at one point there's snow, at one point there's sand. I, I, I mean, I cannot figure out by way of climate or distance where this country is, where the bad guys are. And whenever the, um, the American heroes go to this country, all of the enemy pilots are wearing helmets to conceal any nationality. And I think it's because these, these movies now have to be made such that they cannot alienate any potential audience, and so, so it actually gets, uh, I think, a little laughable at times. How, the the means by which these these films that will go to to avoid any kind of specific conflict.
1: So uh, the fact that you can't criticize or show China in a bad light, that will mean that. The movie's villains can't be Chinese, but they don't have to be Western either. They can be sort of mythological. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah.
0: Well, mythological certainly helps. I've also noticed, I think, a rise in just kind of like generic, stateless... Eastern European Soviet bloc villains who are kind of operating on their own accord. Uh, that seems to be the other, the other sort of preferred, uh, the preferred tactic.
1: Well, um, tell us a little about how COVID-19 impacted this phenomenon.
0: Well, so it was, it was, it was fascinating because, you know, um, Before COVID in 2019 or so, we knew that China was going to become the number one box office in the world, but we weren't sure when it was going to happen. And then when COVID-19 hit and it closed all of the U.S. movie theaters and for a while closed all the theaters in China, um, it allowed China to really spring forward in a real way. So um, Chinese movie theaters reopened faster than American theaters did and allowed China be, to become the number one box office in the world. Now, of course, there was a huge asterisk on that because it wasn't a fair playing field because Ch- uh, American theaters were were closed at the time. But nonetheless, it was a real symbolic moment um, that here we were just 26 years after the, Ch- the Chinese entertainment industry had really opened at all and it had, it had supplanted the U.S. The other thing that happened was COVID-19 really deteriorated relations between China in the U.S. and it really contributed to this this feeling in China that um, it was going to try to rely less and less on American movies in its market. So it was really since then that we've seen American movies struggle to uh, be approved for release, and so it's been this it's been this weird dance where. Um, you know, right after COVID nineteen, there was this very weird moment where because China's economy had, had recovered so much faster than America's, all kinds of Western businesses were suddenly more reliant on China than ever before. And and you had this moment in late 2020, early 21, which is when I was finishing the book, where fashion, tech, cars, Every conceivable Western business were reporting these earnings. Where essentially the executives were saying, "Thank God for China," because it's really keeping our lights on right now. Because the U.S. economy is still struggling to get out from under COVID nineteen. Since then, obviously, now things are things are sort of reversed again because China is shutting down so many major major cities. But I think it really did contribute to a pretty severe deterioration in relations between. US and Hollywood. And I don't know, going forward, what kind of certainty Hollywood's going to have when it comes to accessing this market.
1: The the relationship between culture, politics, and money is not a new one. (laughs) And it's not exclusive to the China-US competition. But there's something special about this that's not the same as just art and money always being uh, intertwined. What is it that you think is different about this than than other competition in, in the system?
0: I think the main difference is that it's happening between two countries that are larger ideological rivals and and it's it's really i think turned the movies into something of a proxy battleground and 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 this was really this really hit home for me when i was in kenya and and i had spent several days um as i said in these villages with these satellite dishes and then i met with an official this is actually this ends this ends the book but um i met with an official who was the the country's film minister who was basically in charge of deciding what kinds of movies and TV shows his people watched. And he was an incredibly conservative, very socially conservative man. And he said to me, I love importing Chinese movies because they've already been censored for me. And I don't need to worry about Western values coming and corrupting my people. And I thought, well, this this really brings it home because this is about more than just the money that you make on what kinds of movies you, you put out. Um, this is about using the movies to reflect what kind of geopolitical alliance you want to form. And, and obviously, there's a big difference between an alliance with the U.S. and an alliance with China when it comes to the model of governance and, and the values that are going to be exported. So I think um, that is that is the key difference here. And that is why I actually thought that there was a book here to do, which was because this is this is a larger story than just where box office ticket sales come from.
1: So a country like China has no problem uh, ideologically um, inserting its political and ideological and values goals in it. Uh, but you're a Wall Street Journal reporter, so um, Hollywood is, seems to be operating according to basic capitalistic principles. It's going after a big market. It's adapting its products to please their customers. What's wrong with that? Why why I, won't that succeed?
0: Well, I think um, I think you're channeling in that question. Um, Really what I hear a lot of times from executives, which is, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to exploit any market we can. Um, I think also they might even say, look, is it the worst thing in the world that, you know, Chinese moviegoers are getting to see fun entertaining films, you know, I, it, it, it's, it's not necessarily not every, not every, dis, not every business decision has to be inherently political. I think they, they would say. Um, and, and I think I, I completely understand. And I, and I think, look, we're in a world now where if, if China shut off its access to all Hollywood films tomorrow, the studios would be in a world of hurt and their shareholders would be, and their employees would be and there. And, and they'd have to, cuts would have to come from somewhere. Right. Um but I think that the, the the tension here is that these are capitalist motivations working in a country with capitalist and political aims. And this is where I think the the legacy question comes up. I think that a lot of the executives in Hollywood who were, you know, eagerly censoring films to make sure that they played in China and made money in Chinese movie theaters. Um, were really thinking on a quarter by quarter basis and thinking about how they could make their numbers for the 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 corporate parent company, right? How they could could make that happen. Make that happen. And I think that in China, it was there was a much longer term uh, incentive there and and so I wonder and I don't know the answer to this but I wonder how some of these decisions will be reviewed 50 years from now um, when when we look back on China's rise and China's challenge to the US and its challenge to liberal democracy, how these decisions to kind of rush toward its consumers and do whatever its people its leaders asked of it, um will be will be um will be viewed in retrospect
1: that uh, shorter term thinking is a is a problem for the US and the west in general on on many levels compared to China yes they they do have a very long term view uh, and and more patience uh because they have different out, outcome variables so um there's a lot at stake. Um, what, what do you think, finally and ultimately, this is, this is the hardest question for you, so I left it for last. Um, what, as someone who likes movies as an art form and as an entertainment form, as well as looking at it as an industry and a business, what do you think the film industry should do to compete more effectively on, on every level.
0: Well, I think what it's, what it's trying to do now is, is bifurcate the business. And that's why we have the, the rise of streaming and the, um, which is really, I I would say a model that is, that is less reliant on markets like China. Um, and, and more about, um, Subscriber growth, right? So it's it's not going to rely as much on accessing that that Chinese box office. So I think the rise of streaming is something of a hedge against China's China's influence. But but I think this is a tricky question, you know. And and this has come up when actually when I talk to people in D.C. as well, because I think there's there's now a broader bipartisan coalition of politicians who want to do something about this. Hollywood censorship and and the concessions that western business is making to maintain access to the to the Chinese market. Um and I'm, I'm I'm struggling to think though about what that could look like though. I don't you know, I don't think anyone wants a world where American politicians are ordering up movies the way that Chinese officials can do so with Chinese filmmakers. I don't think that's necessarily uh, an option. And, and I don't think anybody wants a world where politicians are punishing studios for the way they do business. Um, but I, I, I'm curious, I think the, the final leg, though, that we that we haven't quite seen is sustained consumer backlash. Um, there's been there's been a number of high profile examples of this kind of censorship causing consternation among some consumers. Um, but it seems to fade rather rather quickly, and so one thing I'm very curious to see is how Hollywood responds if that backlash grows louder and is able to be is able to sort of last longer than a few days. Um, what then might they they have to do? Um, but it's it's a it's a really thorny um, situation that Hollywood finds itself in because to just to allude to to the start of our conversation, it's really the first time in Hollywood history that executives find themselves uh, at odds with their, with their home government.
1: And nobody really seems to know the answer yet. So, um, yeah, well, I'm glad to know that people are working on it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we have to figure out a, a smart response to this challenge. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today,
0: Eric. Lots of good
1: luck with the book.
0: Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure.
1: Uh, The book is Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy, an important book. Thank you, and thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.